When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, September 5th. It's time for part two of our two Mini Break podcast Tuesday, catching up on all things that unfolded in the round of 16 at the 2023 U.S. Open. Of course, if you missed out on Anything that's occurred over the last 48 hours in the women's singles draw, all you got to do to catch up is scroll down on your podcast feed and hit play. Part one of today's episodes, of course, caught up on all things women's singles round of 16 at the U.S. Open. That, of course, includes my thoughts on the monumental results, Ostapenko over Sviantek, Keys over Pagula. I actually broke down all eight round of 16 matches, previewed all four quarterfinals as well. So again, if you're looking for U.S. Open women's singles content, all you got to do is scroll down on your podcast feed. Of course, this episode is going to focus on all the men's singles action. Once again, I want to recap all eight round of 16 matches, preview all four quarterfinals, break down the biggest storylines for all of you tennis fans heading into the year's final majors home stretch. Of course, that means a discussion on the American men. It's been one of the biggest storylines of this 2023 U.S. Open, and for the first time in over 15 years, we have three American men reaching the quarterfinals of this event. Of course, Ben Shelton does it in the most dramatic fashion, a four-set upset victory over fellow American Tommy Paul, and look, obviously, I have Ben Shelton thoughts. He's a guy we've been following throughout the course of his ascension, whether it was his freshman season winning the NCAA team championship as part of a loaded Florida roster. He plays five singles on that team, goes on that summer to win a Futures event, to make the final of Kalamazoo, to win the ITA All-American Championships. Of course, from there, he's the number one player in the country. He's the NCAA singles champion. Now he's a two-time slam quarterfinalist. And look, Ben's been very good at a few things now for a couple of years consecutively, and it's those traits that scream so clearly through every performance he puts together for us tennis fans. I got a lot of thoughts on Ben Shelton. Obviously, a disappointing performance for Tommy in what has otherwise been a spectacular breakout 2023 season, but we got to talk Ben versus Tommy. We got to talk Tiafo Fritz, each advancing comfortably, what that says about the state of American men's tennis coming out of this 2023 U.S. Open, and of course, as we begin to turn the page towards 2024, that'll be the lead, but a lot of other good things to talk about. Actually, that's not going to be the lead because we had a jaw-dropping match, probably our best of the tournament to date. Yesterday was Labor Day. 
most of us have the day off. If you're in school, certainly you had the day off. A lot of people are either working from home or not working at all. Therefore, maybe all of us could stay up to watch Alex Zverev's dramatic five-set victory over Yannick Sinner. It was a match we highlighted from the start of this tournament. We hoped we were going to get it. They were two of our top five contenders entering the event. You were hoping for nothing less than four sets, and they gave us five thrilling sets of tennis. Ultimately, Zverev advancing to the quarterfinals. I want to break down that match for you. Obviously, talk about the four-set Russian victories, Medvedev, Demonauer. Talk about what, in my opinion, were very boring results for Djokovic and Alcaraz, and I mean that in the most positive sense for each of them, in the sense that the result was never in question. Again, Recap all eight round of 16 matches, preview all four quarterfinals as well. After today's mini breaks, we'll all be caught up on everything that's unfolded in New York. We'll be ready to turn the page towards, I suppose, Tuesday's action, uh, Tuesday's quarterfinal action, Wednesday's quarterfinal action as well. And then before we know it, folks, it's championship weekend. We'll be here every day throughout the rest of the event, recapping everything that unfolds. Of course, why are we able to do that? It's because of the support we get from all of you. And of course, because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. I already said it earlier today, so I'll be even briefer now. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. All right, let's talk U.S. Open men's singles round of 16. I enjoyed every second of the five-set thriller between Alex Virov and Yannick Sinner. And look, for Alex Virov, this is a culmination of his return to the top of the game. Obviously, he suffers the debilitating ankle injury in the second set of against Rafa in last year's French Open semifinals. He's out for the remainder of the season. Slowish start, certainly to his year. He lost four of his first five, if you include Davis Cup. Didn't make, you know, a semifinal of an event until Dubai, and there he lost a rare match to Andre Rublev. Obviously, the breakthrough comeback result comes at Roland Garros, but, you know, he beats Tiafo, Dimitrov, the unproven Tomas Martin Echeverry before getting blitzed by Rude in those semifinals. So, yes, while you felt like he was slowly returning to form, he still wasn't quite all the way back. Gets blitzed by Berrettini in the third round of Wimbledon. If they were both healthy, maybe that's not that shocking a result, but given there were even more questions surrounding Berrettini than there were Zverev entering that match to see Berrettini win in straights. You still have some doubts about Zverev coming into the summer. He's now erased all of those doubts. Wins the title in Hamburg. Yes, the disappointing loss to Davidovich Fokina in Canada, but follows that up by beating Medvedev, making the semifinals of Cincinnati. Now he gets impressive back-to-back victories over both Dimitrov and Sinner to reach the quarterfinals here at the U.S. Open. He now only trails Boris Becker in terms of Germans with the most quarterfinals at the majors in singles uh, at the ATP level. He's 26 years old, and again, for Zverev to earn this 6-4-3-6-6-2-4-6-6-3 victory, he had to show off every ounce of the physicality you would expect from a player in the prime of his career. And I think that's the thing that stood out most for Alex Zverev, is coming out of these last two matches, two and a half hours through the first two sets with Dimitrov, he cruises from there a you know four-hour battle with Yannick Sinner that he gets through in five sets and gets that early break in the third, never turns back from there. He's back. He's healthy. He's physical. I tweeted this out last night. I think I even said it on the mini break podcast prior in talking about the Dimitrov match, but there is just a quality 
to a healthy Alex Virev, where every match he plays at the majors, he mucks up and makes played on his terms. And that doesn't mean he's playing blitzing tennis the way when I say, you know, a Sabalenka is always playing on her terms and Alcaraz is always playing on his terms. Those power-centric, first-strike, aggressive sort of players, their ability to play on their terms is very evident to the viewer. But for Alex Virev, it's the physicality he introduces into every match that he plays. You're going to get these lengthier 10, 15-shot rallies. Your movement is going to be thoroughly tested. He is going to play backhands cross-court until you prove you can be as consistent as he is off that wing. He is going to try and sneak his way forward, but those approach shots will be left Not in the middle third, but you can get to them if you're his opponent. He's always a little tentative on those approaches, and thus you're going to have the opportunity to pass him with that shot on your racket. He's going to pop up that first volley at times to give you a look at a second pass as well. He's going to give you opportunities to beat him while asking every question of you. There's also going to be those shaky moments, 4-all, 5-4. He's serving where a double fault gets mixed in, a 70-mile-per-hour second serve that he mixes in with his 130-mile-per-hour blitzing first serves. It just does feel like every match is played on Zverev's terms. And while Yannick Sinner hit through a lot of that physicality, while Yannick Sinner's ability to strike a tennis ball never remains in question, I wish... I could show all of you listeners my phone, the amount of texts I got from casual fans or just sporting fans who were looking for anything to watch on Monday night. And after Duke gave Clemson the business, you know, in, in college football, they were they tuned over to the Sinner Zverev match. Everyone's in on Sinner. He passes the eye test with flying colors. Now, again, how skinny he remains. The fact that, you know, you saw him starting to deal with some cramps in the third set. Although, let the record show, he gets through in four. You know, this match was a full five. He plays through. He wins the fourth set. While it looks like he's struggling so severely in between points, while it looks like he's struggling so severely on the changeovers, the moment the point starts, some switch flips in Yannick Sinner's head, and he's sliding into backhands. He's exploding through forehands cross court. He's closing the net success. 29 of 39 in this match. The difference is Zverev's ability to win free points behind his first serves. And it is fascinating because Zverev went 70% of his first serves to Sinner's 69%, but it was the amount of first serves made over the totality of this match. For as hard as Alex Zverev hits his first serve, he hits it real consistently. He's made 70% of his first serves in four of the five matches that he's played now. Uh, excuse me, in four three out of the four matches that he's played in reaching the quarterfinals. Another 16 aces in this match against Sinner. He wins 70% of his first serve points, but he won 20 more points behind his first serve than Sinner did. That, again evidence of the disparity in the first serve percentage, and that's where you could tell Sinner didn't have his legs because it was really hard for him to explode into that first serve. Made 56% in set number three, 55 in set four, 68 in set number five, but got broken right out of the gates playing a sloppy game on serve and sort of was never able to get his ground back. Zverev, meanwhile, unbroken in that deciding set about as much moxie as we've seen from the 26-year-old in a spot like this at a major in quite some time, and You know, again, the tennis was breathtaking. I wish I could point to one specific evidence of a matchup issue. I mean, again, the biggest thing was Vera's ability to blitz first serves by Sinner. Sinner's number two in break percentage, excuse me. Yeah, number two in break percentage on hard courts on the ATP Tour this season. Trails only Medvedev. He's over that 30% elite of the elite threshold. 
And yet, when a 6'6 player is raining 130 mile per hour bombs on you out wide on the deuce side, how many times did he hit that T serve? on that ad side, Zverev, to set up an easy plus one forehand. And while Zverev's nut numbers overall look a little shaky, Zverev, uh, 31 of 54 overall at the net, was 10 of 11 in set number five. Just felt like he continued to push forward to get center stretched after, you know, again, extending rallies. Zverev, the only person who has the size, the strength, and the technique to absorb the pace center likes to throw, particularly inside out. I think Zverev is finally getting outside of his forehand, driving through that ball more comfortably. He's hitting the down the line so successfully. Zverev's just playing top 10 tennis, top 5 tennis again. When Alex Zverev plays like this, he belongs in that Tier 2 conversation. And that's why he had to be my number 5 contender, by the way, coming in. Because the level I saw from him against Medvedev and the ascending physicality he's shown, he's shown in Paris on his way to the title in Hamburg and Cincinnati against Dimitrov. It's all confirmed that he gets closer and closer to being back to 100% himself. And look, it's only his second top 10 win at a major of his career. It's his first on hard courts for Alex Zverev at the majors. It's a significant milestone for multiple reasons. And again, that is why if you're looking for an exclamation point, Zverev has returned to the top of men's tennis. I think this sequence of wins, Dimitrov, center back-to-back, the level he's shown to do so, certainly evidence of that fact Yannick's a 22-year-old kid who's skinny. Like, the best part is he doesn't lack in power. He doesn't lack in movement. He's definitely a little robotic in the sense he wants to be driving the ball 90% pace at a minimum at all times. He wants to be looking to move forward. He wants to be the aggressor. That said, I I think he's pretty good at defense. I think he was pretty content extending rallies, waiting for Zverev to get a little shaky, leave something short before he would explode through the forehand. This match was 6-3 in the fifth, and there was one break of serve, and Sinner's legs started cramping midway through the third. It was hot. It was humid. You know, Alex Zverev wore two wristbands, which I know sounds like a really weird observation to, sh- to showcase in this podcast, but Zverev never wears wristbands, let alone two wristbands. I think that speaks to the fact that everyone's like, look, and I've played in those conditions. It's swampy. You're just going to sweat your brains out, and you need the wristbands if you want to hold on to the racket. That was just indicative of how brutal the conditions were. But through that brutality, again, Zverev persists. He advances. You look for Zverev now in reaching the quarterfinals at this event. He's, you know, down 20 points ahead of Taylor Fritz, but they both reach the quarterfinals. So a chance to set, both have a chance to separate themselves. Still, he has that 20 point lead on Fritz heading into the home stretch. He's now only 25 points behind Holger Runa. And you just wonder how much tennis are we going to see from Holger Runa the remainder of this season? So Zverev's looking good, not only to get back to the top 10, and by the way, by make, in making the quarterfinals, he's back up to 10 in the live rankings. He's not only looking good to re-enter the top 10 of the rankings, he's looking good to finish the season top eight in the points race, get himself back in that conversation with the elite of the elite where he belongs. And obviously doesn't have a ton of points to defend the first half of the season. His draws are going to be significantly easier than they were next uh, this year, next year, because he is going to be a top 10 player. And again, that's the tennis I saw. Early breaks for Zverev in sets three, five that he was able to hold on to. Again, the physicality for Sinner just sort of went away down the home stretch of that match, even though his ability to strike the tennis ball soundly when he was on his front foot never did. Again, if you're telling a 22-year-old he's just got to get stronger, he's got to continue to get fitter, I have no questions about his tennis. 
other than, again, his ability to continue to progress moving forward to the net, actually closing out first volleys, which I do think he continues to get better at incrementally each season, the hold percentage rising as such. Sinner only made 54% of his first serves. That's not going to be good enough against Sasha Zverev, who puts so many balls in play, 14 breakpoint chances for himself. Again, this match was separated by two breaks of serve. Zverev, six. Sinner, four. This was the best quality tennis match, certainly through those, well, first two sets of Zverev, Dimitrov were the best quality I think I've seen all tournament. But this match was up there from start to finish in terms of the quality they were able to maintain, particularly given the conditions. Zverev mucks it up. He advances through in five sets. And look, in order to keep some semblance of organization in this podcast, I'm going to break down each quarter individually so we can go preview, preview, quarter, uh, recap, recap, quarterfinal preview, just a little behind the scenes look at what my outline looks like today. I have no new information for you from the Alcaraz-Arinaldi match. Carlos Alcaraz was, yes, down an early break in set number three, but 6-3, 6-3, 6-4, he advances over the 22-year-old Italian. It was a fantastic event for Arinaldi, who with the result up to a new career high, 47 in the live rankings, 22 years old, top 50. You're getting into every event you want to play. He's had a hell of a year. Again, I don't know if he's elite at anything, but I don't see a definitive weakness in his game either. Doesn't have elite pop, but can absolutely blitz a ball by you down the line if he beats you to the spot, which his speed often allows him to do. I think he passes really well. He's good at the improvisational things. I thought, again, he made things extraordinarily intriguing in a point-by-point basis, particularly in set number three against Alcaraz. But, and I say this with the highest With the most affection. I mean this as such a compliment of Carlos Alcaraz. He looked so bored throughout the course of this match. He was chipping forehands and slicing backhands and, you know, spontaneously moving forward to try to create some sort of improvisational sequence it felt like to entertain the crowd. And look, he was doing it all successfully. You look for Alcaraz, 31 winners, 22 unforced errors faced one break point, again, was broken in the third set, but that was the only break he he faced. Five of 12 on break point chances himself, won 78% of his first serve points, 27 of 37 at the net. This match was never in doubt. Alcaraz had the biggest weapon on the court. He was the more physical player. He was just, he was better at everything. It's amazing that a 20-year-old, a 20-year-old can look this bored on court already in a round of 16 U.S. Open match. And, you know, again, I think he's through to either his sixth or eighth quarterfinal at a major. I think it's his sixth quarterfinal, which, again, 20 years old, ridiculous. It's him. It's Wielander, Becker, Borg, you know, and Nadal. That's the five best teenagers we've seen in ATP Tour history and under-21 talents as well. And, again, Alcaraz still has a full another year, another, what, five slams at age 21 or younger to rally up slams three, four, five. I don't think any of us would be shocked if heading into the 2025 season and after the 2025 Australian Open, which will be his last slam as a 21-year-old. If I told you he wins two of the next five majors and goes into age 22 with four slams, much, by the way, like Iga Svantec, who's also still on pace to not be eliminated from the GOAT race, it all feels feasible because he's already this bored in round of 16 matches through in straight sets, not a doubt in mind. And look, on paper, this is a fascinating matchup, Zverev versus Alcaraz. This is one you feel like we're might, we might get to see quite a bit of over the next half decade plus. They've already played five times. Zverev 3-2 in the career head-to-head. Now, they played earlier this season in Madrid. Alcaraz 
blitzing Zverev. One and two match was never in doubt. It was an hour, 22 minutes. You know, Alcaraz dominated on serve, didn't face a break point. Quicker surface. Zverev's serve going to be far more effective. He's just serving better. His legs are far more under him from a movement perspective in and out of corners than it was even in Madrid. You know, they've they've played once on an outdoor hard court. That was in Acapulco 2021. You have a 3-1 victory, but let's be clear, Alcaraz was 18 at the time and not Carlos freaking Alcaraz the way he is now. Here's the thing. Zverev has the size, that heavy inside-out forehand that Alcaraz hits that overwhelms so many lesser opponents. Zverev not only has the technique, he has the size, he has the strength to absorb that ball, to redirect it back with place. He will be comfortable playing through the Alcaraz backhand corner. He has the first serve to win free points for himself. He has the ability to play plus one tennis. He has, in theory, the ability to match Alcaraz's physicality. And you imagine this will be the night match on Wednesday. So Zverev will have 48 hours to recover again. These guys are all in elite shape. You give them 48 hours. Yes, Zverev played a physical match against Dimitrov the round before as well. But I think when he's healthy, he's one of the five most in shape, not necessarily fastest, but five most in shape players we have in the best of five format. Look, Alcaraz is Alcaraz. You're never betting against him at this point. He has earned that sort of benefit of the doubt. I think Zverev serve. I think his backhand, I think the fact that he gets to play a little bit more freely as the underdog in this matchup, even though he's the older player, I think those all play in his factor. I think he could win the opening set. If Alcaraz has his first serve, if Alcaraz has his first forehand, you know, given how unblemished Alcaraz is, about as well-rested as possible. I know he dropped a set against Dan Evans, really the only time he's been pushed at this U.S. Open, but he responded so confidently and was still off the court in about three hours I mean, his forehand to forehand on a faster court, you do worry that ball is going to get into Zverev's body. Zverev's going to shank that ball wide. He's going to leave it short for Alcaraz to pounce on. Zverev's gotten so much better knocking off the first volley, but Alcaraz so good at dipping that first pass, and Zverev does have a tendency to pop that first volley up. Alcaraz is going to have plenty of opportunities to be his superhero self. It's the best match on the board. It's the best of the quarterfinals. I know Medvedev-Rublev is really fun. Obviously, Tiafo versus Shelton on paper, also fascinatingly enjoyable. <sighs> if I was bold, I'd take Zverev in four. I'm not bold. I'll take Alcaraz in four. I think he gets through this match, but I think he does face his first test. And again, I just I don't know if, if Zverev is definitive enough, assertive enough to hit Alcaraz off his spot, even though he'll be able to withstand some of that Alcaraz physicality, relentlessness throughout the course of the match. I'll take Alcaraz in a tight four to advance to the semifinals. All right, that's storyline number one. Let's get into the Americans now because, ugh, were these past 48 hours in particular, obviously Sunday's action particularly enjoyable for those who, like me, have often been you know, a longtime follower of American men's tennis. And to see this group in particular, Taylor, Tommy, both junior slam champions. Tiafa was top five junior in the world. He won the Easter Bowl. He won the boys' 18s Kalamazoo that featured Taylor, Tommy, and obviously he played the best match ever at Kalamazoo, the 2015 five-set final between he and Stefan Kozlov. You know, by the way, five of eight quarterfinalists in the 2014 uh, Boys 18s Kalamazoo became top 100 players. Seven of the top eight cracked the top 125. That field was as good as advertised, and it's fascinating looking back at it now nearly a decade later. Anyways, 
to see all three of those guys now ascend to top 15 players in the world, to see the way they've done it, whether it's Tiafo, obviously semifinals of the U.S. Open last year, Tommy semifinals of the Australian Open this year, Taylor winning Indian Wells, continued success, D.C., Atlanta, Canada, Cincinnati in the buildup to this U.S. Open. He's made a tour-level finals. They've all arrived, and by seed, they all should have reached the second week of this slam, but they all did. They all held seed. They all did it pretty definitively outside of Tommy as well. Maybe that's why it's not shocking that, you know, Tommy, who played the physical five-set match against Sefil in round three, who played still a tricky four-set match against Davidovich Fokina in round number four—excuse uh, me, in round number three, Sefulin was round two— Maybe it's not shocking to see Tommy knocked off in four sets in a rematch of the Australian Open uh, semifinal, uh, excuse me, quarterfinal that was with Ben Shelton. Shelton ultimately, I mean, just electric in what was a 6-4-6-3-4-6-6-4 victory. Now, they should have flopped two of the sets, uh, one of the sets they each won. Tommy should have won set number one. He was up in early break, up 3-1. Bedden gets the... It gets the break back, kind of pulls away from there. Similarly, Ben was up in early break in set number three. Tommy found that final gear, able to get the break back, you know, steal it for 6-4. Ben now breaks Tommy. When Tommy's serving 4-5 in the fourth, Tommy certainly blinked in that moment. But uh, the respect I have for Ben Shelton, who just at 20 years old, at least at this stage of his career, he just so thoroughly knows exactly who he is and exactly who he wants to be, and exactly what he wants to do on court. And it is worth noting the intangibles at the start. The 20-year-old's just electric. He's magnetic. He's one of those personalities tennis fans will perennially gravitate towards regardless of the venue he's playing at because he's got swag. He's got confidence. He's got charisma. He's just got the ability to engage a crowd. You know, his fist pump, his cheer— the mean mugs he offers to his box are very playable on camera. He just wants it. And he, you know, again, he, he presents himself. He, he leaves it all on the court and he shows himself so keenly. Uh, no, that's not the word. He just makes himself, vulnerability is the wrong word, but he's just so thoroughly himself. He's just so clearly Ben out on court. And, you know, that big personality matches so perfectly with the game style he has, which is the ability to take your breath away with the ability to hit the 149-mile-per-hour serve, the ability to blitz the plus-one forehand by you, to the ability to use his elite size, at least first step, to slide into that drop volley and just sneak it over the net. Tommy never had his rhythm in this match. Again, ultimately a 6-4-6-3-4-6-6-4 win for Ben. Ben broken three times in the match, but fought off 11 of the 14 break points that he faced. 16 aces. He won 75% of his first serve points on a 67% clip. Now, nine double faults in this match, but he was swinging on both serves. He was gunning because when he hit his spot, Tommy was leaving him pop-ups in the center of the court. Tommy just could not get a read on Ben's serve throughout the duration of this match. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. The best quote I've ever been offered by a player is in describing Shelton's serve. He said, look, if Shelton makes the out wide serve, you're just There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it because if he makes that serve 
A, you're lucky if you get a racket on it. B, even if you do get a racket on it, you're popping that ball up and he's either served and volleyed already, put the first ball away to the open court, or it's an easy sitter pop up to his forehand, which when he has time, he can accelerate through so confidently. Again, he puts so much pressure on you moving forward, 28 of 42 at the net. You feel like you never really get your rhythm from the baseline. He's parking the bus on these U.S. Open courts. He's standing 12 feet behind the baseline and just saying, I don't care where you hit your serve. I'm getting a clean rip. I'm getting a clean cut on the ball and betting on his own ability with his strength that that ball is going to go service line or deeper regardless of where he's at from a court positioning standpoint. He just played bolder. He plays to win. He plays on his terms in every match that he faced. And look, Tommy was bad in this match. The forehand was spraying, 38 unforced errors against 25 unforced errors. He only made 59% of his first serves. The aggressiveness he played with sets 3, 4, and 5 in his comeback against Sofiulin, that was nowhere to be found. It felt like every rally he was playing not to lose, just waiting for the big first strike or the big ball from Ben to make him uncomfortable. Except for when he was down a break in the third. Then he woke up. Then he said, you know what? Screw it. I'm playing to win the rest of the way. But again, it was such... It was so definitive that this match was being played on Ben's racket. That whenever Ben wanted to rip a ball, move forward to end a point, the point was going to be over. Again, it was his energy that was captivating the crowd far more than Tommy, other than that third set when Tommy managed to come back, force a fourth because the crowd really wanted to see a fourth. But... Again, Ben has won four match. He's won more than two match. He's won two matches or more at just two tour level events this season. He did make a quarterfinal in Cagliari on, at a challenger, but two tour level uh, events where he's won multiple matches: Australian Open where he makes the quarters, U.S. Open where he makes the quarters. That's gumption, folks. That is just huevos in the 20-year-old now up to number 27 in the live rankings. Five guys under the uh, age 21 or younger in the top 30. Alcaraz, Runa, Musetti, Lachetchka, Ben Shelton. Shelton now, you look in the points race, even with just the two big slam results, he's 26th overall in the year. He's fourth now in the race to the year-end finals. He's passed Arthur Fee, and again, given Alcaraz, Runa are very, very unlikely to play that next-gen finals event. Ben is going to be one of the top eight, 21 or under players in the 2020, uh, is going to be one of the top 21 and under players, excuse me, from this 2023 season, and again, doesn't turn 21 until October Yes, there were some natural surface struggles, but you make two major quarterfinals in your first full season of tour-level play. You're doing something right if you're Ben Shelton. And again, the ceiling is so obvious. You just can't teach that weapon, those weapons. You can't teach that sort of big match toughness, the gumption to just play on his terms. And that's the sort of gumption that comes when you've just done a lot of winning in your life, when that confidence you gain from being the best guy in the world at something. Again, he was the best college player in the world for nine months, and uh, we've, we see a lot of those college guys already now in the top 300, 200 of the rankings. Again, you just, you can't fake what that, what, what all that winning breeds in, from a confidence perspective, from a mentality perspective moving forward, and for Ben to get to experience all that success so young, so early in his career, to have such a strong support group to keep him up through the adversity he faced through the middle months of the season, 
What a fascinating case study. What a year we'll have to discuss November, December when it's off season time. What do we take you know, what sort of grade do you give on Ben Shelton this season? Hard to do anything other than an A, right? Given that his ranking progressed uh, from start to finish in the year and he made two quarterfinals, even all given all the other struggles. Similarly for Tommy, yes, it's a disappointment, but in a vacuum, round of sixteen at the US Open is a successful progress for him and you know, to overcome a five-set, a two-set deficit in round two, to beat Davidovich Fokina in match three. He's top five in total hardcourt wins right now in the 2023 season with, you know, indoor hardcourt events still to come. You know, he's still alive in the points race right now. You look for Tommy Paul. He's currently sitting at 12th. He's, what, 600 points behind Zverev. That's a lot, but Paris, Vienna, I think they're going outdoor in China. Again, I haven't looked at the rest of the schedule, but there's plenty of action still for Tommy. And, you know, again, he's consolidated a spot in the top 15. He's he's jumped another tier from maybe tier four, bottom of tier three to top of th- tier three, if not bottom of tier two. So, you know, great year for Tommy, but Ben's just electric. This is what he does. And again, we have three American quarterfinalists now. The next, of course, will be Ben's uh, Ben's opponent in the quarterfinals as Tiafo. Never in doubt against Rinky Hichikata. Tiafo ultimately a straight set winner, 6-4, 6-1, You know, again, they traded breaks in that third set. Hichikata, though, just two breaks overall in the match, just three break points total. His serve wasn't there. He only made 49% of his first serves, and he was clearly trying to add extra MPHs because any sitting kick serve Tiafo was feasting on. Tiafo 7 of 14 in break point chances, 27 winners against just 22 unforced errors, 15 aces. He won 83% of his first serve points. Again, it's a third match at this event, whether it was Lerner Tien round one. I forget who the opponent was round two, but that was another straight set victory for Tiafo. He looked pretty comfortable in his four set win over Manorino. And then, look, I know Hichikata just made his top 100 breakthrough in reaching the fourth round of this event, but Francis was better at everything. And while Rinky was exceptional once the baseline rally got going, Francis's ability to dominate with his first serve, first strike, and his ability to just neutralize every every serve Hijikata threw at him, you know, at best, Hijikata was starting with a service line first forehand, not an inside the service box, no service line first forehands, because Tiafo did such a good job of neutralizing things from the start, and if you're Francis... You know, again, another quarterfinal in New York. You dropped one set to get there. You don't face Joe. You know, you get a fellow American, a younger American in Ben Shelton in round number two. And uh, excuse me, in quarter in your quarterfinal instead of Tommy, who's a guy your peer who you've played a dozen times. When I look at this quarterfinal, because all and by the way, fantastic run for Rinky Hijikata, who we talked about a lot throughout the first week of the mini break podcast. He's into the top 100, into the top 90. You know, life just opens up for the 22-year-old former UNCL American heading into 2024. Biggest payday of his career. A fantastic run. Again, the serve is the controllable. And he's, what, 5'9", 5'10". So that serve's never going to be blitzing by 130, 135. But Rinky is a good enough mover and so skilled with the racket that you feel like with more time, with added muscle, the serve can get to a reasonable place to where he's hitting his spots well enough with enough pace that he's getting at minimum neutral, at most, you know, at best, easy first strike opportunities to keep pace. And he's always going to give himself chances on the return of serve. Uh, Look, it's a great event for Rinky. 
But now we get the All-American matchup again. Shelton, Tiafo. sorry to keep using this phrase, but the immovable object meets the unstoppable force. I mean, Ben's got the balls. He's got the gumption. He's got the serve. He's got the ability to make this match exciting. This is the night match, I believe, uh, when they play what they're going to play Tuesday night here. Uh, This is the night match on Ash, justifiably so. I imagine it's going to be a packed house. I mean, Ben's been unbreakable at times in this event. And his serve into the Tiafo forehands, Tiafo's going to have to offer a lot of chip returns. And, you know, you give Ben time on that first forehand. He's so effective in moving in behind it, so effective in switching up his spots and hitting his targets with that approach. We're getting at least one breaker in this match. Now, I'm just, I'm not betting against Tiafo in New York unless he's playing a blue chipper in Alcaraz, a Djokovic. And Tiafo has been better on serve than Ben this year. Tiafo top 10, top 6 in hold percentage, meaning he's 6th in hold percentage on hard courts this season. You know, he has been dominant, winning 80% of his first serve points in three of the four wins he's racked up this week. And look, it's been about as ideal of a draw as Tiafo could have asked for. The only seed he faced is Manorino. And yes, Ben comes in with momentum, with weapons. He's dangerous, but it's not Tommy or, you know, it's not Casper Ruud. It's not an in-form Holgaruna. No, he's facing a 20-year-old in Ben Shelton. I think Tiafo matches Shelton's plus one capabilities, and I just think Francis is going to find his way to a break of serve. I think Francis is so quick, so gifted at the improvisational skills, and so is Tommy, by the way. There's some similarities in these matchups for Ben in that he's going to try and attack the forehand with pace and that he has to expect an extra ball to come back. That said, Francis is just better at the plus one serve, not only than Tommy, I think he's better than Ben right now as well regardless of how well Ben's been serving at this U.S. Open. Ben's too magnetic. He's too much of a game day performer. I'm going to bet on him to win a set, but I'll take Tiafo to win in four. And again, I'm going to take both of them to earn a couple of top 10 plays on SportsCenter. This one's going to be one for the highlight reel. This one is certainly going to be fun. Of course, your final American rounding out the group is Taylor Fritz. Fritz continuing his run of dominance. He doesn't drop a set on his way to his first ever U.S. Open quarterfinal. Fritz, I mean, again, he just was good enough at absorbing the first strike of Dom Stricker, and then Stricker just did not have the legs to dish anything out in return. It's funny because from a statistics standpoint, Stricker, 34 winners, Fritz, 35. They both hit 30 unforced errors. Fritz, 3 of 4 on breakpoint chances. Stricker, 1 of 4 on breakpoints. Fritz, 17 aces. Stricker, 13 aces. We're a ton of physical rallies in this matchup. You know, a lot of plus one tennis, a lot of first forehand to the open court for Fritz, second ground stroke to the open court for Stricker. That first ball was often a volley, and for what it's worth, Stricker, a very efficient 17 of 24 at the net. The legs just weren't there for Stricker, made only 53% of his first serves. That weren't wasn't enough, and, you know, when Taylor was able to get early breaks in sets, I believe it was one in three. Uh, he never really turned back from those early breaks. You know, again, it's a really good event for Stricker. The 21-year-old cracks the top 100. But for Fritz, this is just the exclamation point. To go title Atlanta, semis DC, quarter Cincinnati, three-set loss, but you were up 5-1 in the first set and should have won that match in straights to Canada finalist Demon Hour. Now wins over Stevie Varias, Menzik, and Stricker, all without dropping a set. Oh, no, it was sets two and three where he went up the early break. He should have won this match. He did win this match. 
I mean, he's, he's just, if you don't have a weapon to expose Taylor's lack of elite movement, you're not beating him. If you can't get the ball out of the center third with elite pace, you're not beating him because Taylor Fritz is as good at striking a tennis ball from the baseline as anyone we have in tennis right now. That shoulder is so fluid on the serve as well. Taylor was dominant. This match was never in doubt. Straight set win for him against Dominic Stricker. Now, you know, again, I want to blitz through his opponent's match even quicker because I learned very little. Shout out to Borna Goyo, who we talked about all week long. Everything I said about Rinki Hijikata applies to Goyo as well. It's a first career fourth round for him at a major. Goyo up to 76 in the live rankings as such. Did go up an early break in set number two on Djokovic and to see his former college coach, Tony Bresky, in the box celebrating. I was like, oh my God. Tony's going to do it again. He's going to convince his player to achieve the impossible. He's going to get Goyo to beat Djokovic. If anyone can pull it off, it's Tony Bresky. I always say, again, smoothest talker we have in tennis. Should I ever someday have someone I want to propose to, I'm going to get Tony Bresky to do it because no one says no to Tony Bresky. He just gets you to believe. Um, look, Borda serve, his forehand, his physicality. He took some risks. He snapped some inside-in forehands. He tried to do some damage. 40 winners against Djokovic uh, to Djokovic's 26. The problem is he also offered 40 unforced errors to Djokovic's 12. Novak was a rock. Considering the five sets he played against Jira the, year, the round before, to see him untested and to see him look unblemished physically heading into the matchup with Fritz, that's really all you can ask for. I mean, again, match was never in doubt. Novak, uh, excuse me, Goyo just not consistent enough with his aggression to put Djokovic under any sort of serious threat. You know, that said, Djokovic also 8-0 in his career against Taylor Fritz. They played one five-set match in Australia, round of 32 back in 2021. That's the only time Taylor's won a set off Djokovic in any of their matchups. Djokovic, by the way, 5-0 in their, uh, excuse me, I said 8-0, 7-0. Good, good reading, Alex, 7-0 in their seven career head-to-head matchups. Uh, again, only set he dropped to him were those two sets in Australia. He's 4-0 against him on hard courts. Beat him in Cincinnati 0-4 a couple of weeks ago. In theory, you know, again, Fritz serves big, takes a couple of big swings on the return of serve, although Djokovic is just hitting his spot so ruthlessly on the serve, and his first strike just goes into the open court with such precision now that I know he he doesn't jump out to you as a, you know, take the racket out of his opponent's hand power sort of player, but the precision he plays with, just so well suited, you know, his ability to spread the court is exactly what Taylor Fritz does not want. Also, you know, again, he'll be able to absorb that first strike of Fritz, get it back with reasonable enough depth that Fritz is going to have to be assertive in moving forward. When he has the opportunity to knife volleys off at the net, he can't float them as he too frequently does because Djokovic is going to track down that second pass and hit the ball right by you. I mean, Taylor hasn't dropped a set yet. That's the case for him to win a set in this match. I'll go Novak in straights. I just I think we're on a Novak Alcaraz collision course. I don't I haven't seen anything yet to dissuade me of that opening opinion. Uh, so again, quarterfinal number three. I'll take Djokovic over Fritz in straight sets. I apologize. I know that wasn't the greatest of previews, but you know again. For Taylor Fritz, it's been an outstanding year. You look for him in the points race, by the way. Taylor Fritz right now sitting at a very, very sizzly ninth place, 20 points behind Alex Zverev. 
year-end finals is is in his grasp. And, you know, again, you get back to a year-end finals for a second time, two consecutive years. You just don't see that very frequently in ATP Tour history. Certainly three years, five ATP Tour finals throughout the course of a career. Now you're in a special group. And Taylor Fritz is on pace to do exactly that. Doesn't turn 26 till October. Has consolidated a top 10 spot and proved he belonged there across surfaces throughout the course of this season. First quarterfinal, I do not think it will be his last in New York of his career. But give me Djokovic to advance. And then, last but certainly not least, let's talk about the Russians. This was the best match we've seen from Medvedev. Probably... Of this North American hardcourt stretch, you look for Medvedev ultimately grinding out a four-set victory over Alex Dimenauer, the third-seeded Russian, earning a 2-6-6-4-6-1-6-2 win over Demon. It was fascinating to hear in the post-match press conference, Demon said, yeah, he took his legs out from under me. and uh, He took my legs out from under me. And... Look, that epitomizes the physicality Medvedev brings, particularly to hardcourt tennis, particularly in the three out of five set format when he's at his fittest, won 81% of his first serve points. And I continue to stand by the fact, and maybe this is in preparation for the eventual Alcaraz semifinal where he knows he's going to have to hit more aggressively. He's hitting his forehand really, really, really well right now. You know, again, a, a 20 of 28 at the net. Now for Demon, he was 30 of 39 at the net. 31 of 36 winners to unforced errors, not too far off from Medvedev's 30-32 splits. Two of six on breakpoint chances to Medvedev's five of 10. The real lopsided set was set number four, where you know Demon only makes 50% of his first serves, only hits five winners in that set. You could just see he was on his back foot. He wasn't able to snap that on the run forehand as successfully as he was in particular sets one and two. Look, Medvedev came out flat. That was the real thing. He wasn't aggressive. He was so tentative, and, and Demonauer was on top of him. 9 of 9 at the net in set number 1. 11 of 12 on first serve points and dropped just 5 points on serve in the set. He wasn't able to sustain that level of aggression, and why wasn't he? It's because A, Medvedev was hitting his spots on the first serve really successfully, but B, and more importantly, he's hitting through his forehand more fluidly. I actually thought he won the forehand-to-forehand exchanges with Demon. Obviously, they're both going to drive that backhand, keep it low. Medvedev's ability to find the backhand corner in particular with that backhand, or Maybe it's actually his ability to drive through the court when he wanted to open things up with the backhand line, follow it forward. That was the most successful combination. Demon a little loose with his forehand passing shots on the day. Again, Demon's top five in, hold, uh, in top and hard court wins this season. Demon's 11 in the live rankings. He's 11th in the points race, both career highs for the 24-year-old Australian. He was one of my make-or-break players. Coming out of the year's final major, I think it's safe to say it was a make year for Alex Demonauer where it's kind of showed, no, 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 my ceiling isn't 18 to 25. My ceiling is I can be in that 7 to 15 range as he was this year, particularly with the overwhelming hardcourt success. And by the way, that's all we have left. So yes, there's a healthy gap between he and Zverev Fritz in that 8-9 points race spot. But you, you know we're going to see Demon competing at every event down the remainder of the season. We'll see him in Antwerp. We'll see him in Vienna. We'll see him in Paris. He likes to get his court time in. Good 
tournament for Demon. Best win of the North American hardcore stretch for Medvedev, who obviously gets a matchup he knows very well in his fellow compatriot, a guy he's known since his adolescent years in 25-year-old Andre Rublev. Rublev, by the way, up to fifth in the points race, and there's a healthy 600-point delta between him and Runa in seventh, a 630-point delta between he and Fritz in ninth, and then a thousand points between he and Kasparud Root in tenth. Look, Draper was the one who I think felt the conditions, the the heat, the humidity mo- more than maybe any other player on the day. And while Draper does take that second set, goes up an early break in the third, you could just tell the heaviness of that Andre Rublev ball, the persistence of Andre Rublev. That's what ultimately allows him to win out in a 6-3-3-6-6-3-6-4 win over the talented young 21-year-old. Now, you look for Draper with this result. He's back up to 98 in the points race. He's back up to, I believe, 102 uh, in the live rankings as well. You know, back in the top 100 mix, 105 in the live rankings, excuse me, but back in the top 100 mix, he'll be He'll be back in the top 100 by the end of the year, given how many injuries he's dealt with, the fact that he isn't even 22 yet. He's in a good spot. Jack, you know, I have no concerns about the lefty Draper, who I don't think has a discernible weakness either. If you can play with enough pace through his forehand, yeah, you'll get him to leave that ball short. But if you subsequently leave a ball short in trying to attack that forehand, he's on top of it. He's moving forward behind it. He absorbs pace so well on his backhand wing. He moves forward so comfortably. His first serve is a real weapon. 18 aces on the day to Zverev's 14, uh, to Rublev's 14. Man, Rublev is sneaky physically fit. I don't think we talk about that enough in why he's been able to have this five-year run he's been on where, you know, again, point in, point out, match in, match out. He's finding forehands in the backhand corner. I think he's gotten so much more fluid moving to his backhand wing, so much better at absorbing pace, so much better at dishing pace back out uh, with his subsequent volleys as well, uh, with his volleys as well. So much more successful at the net, even though he was only eight of 11 in this match. But 45 winners against 25 unforced errors is nothing to sniff your nose at. And again, he got, you know, he took the legs out from underneath Jack Draper. You could tell sets three, set four, particularly the home stretch of set three, tracking down, you know, the heaviness, the depth, the pace of those Rublev forehands in the corner. I thought Rublev, more than anything, did a great job going two forehands cross into that Draper backhand and then a forehand line to get him hitting that on the stretch forehand where, again, he'll leave that on the run forehand short. He'll leave that pressured by pace forehand short because his grip is a little bit more extreme. It's when you give Draper time on that forehand wing that it becomes such a lethal weapon you know what you're going to get out of his backhand wing, though. It's very much absorb, redirect off that side. And Rublev did a great job of using that wing as a way to steady points and then ultimately finding ways to attack with his forehand whenever that opportunity presented himself. He did a great job, I thought, early in the match of dipping a few returns uh, a few returns at Draper's feet that where he would either miss the first volley or pop it up so that serve and volley play became a little bit less tenable for Draper as the match progressed. Although, again... Made 18, uh, hit 18 aces, only made 57% of his first serves. It was 20 of 56 on second serve points. Obviously, you offer enough second serves to Andre Rublev. He's feasting on forehands, and that's why he finds himself in another U.S. Open quarterfinal. By the way, again, you look for Andre Rublev, he's closing in on double-digit quarterfinals at the majors. Now, you look for Rublev in his career, the uh, progress he's made quarterfinals now. It's his fourth quarterfinal at the U.S. Open, four plus five, ninth quarterfinal overall. And 
Yeah, he's made the quarterfinals now three of the last four years in New York. Made the quarterfinals at three of the four majors this season. He's made the quarterfinals or further at five of the last eight majors that he's played. I know I joke that the Destiny 1-2 and two at the Tour Finals, that's Andre Rublev's prime in his career, but hot damn, that's a good prime. Again, Andre Rublev will certainly not need a second profession in his career. It's just relentlessly consistent, and maybe he has a limited ceiling, but he's got about as high of a floor as you can expect. Match in, match out, you know you're getting full effort. You know if you don't have the physicality to, uh, to match up against his forehand or a weapon to disrupt it, he's just going to beat you. And that's what Andre Rublev does through in four sets over Jack Draper. Now, um, the the real fun is that you look at this matchup between Medvedev and Rublev, and obviously they've been facing off against one another since the boys' tens in Russia. It's a lopsided matchup for Medvedev. 6-2 in the career head-to-head, but Rublev has had success of late. He's won two of the last three. He beat Medvedev twice on the hard courts. Uh, two of their last three have been on hard courts. By the way, all eight of their matchups have been on hard courts. Medvedev, 6-2 and two overall, 2-0 two and oh at the majors, wins in Australia 2021 in straights, U.S. Open 2020 in straights. Again, Rublev's win the tour finals. He beat him 7-6 in the third last year. He beat him 6-3 in the third in Cincinnati in 2021. <sighs> you know, again... To see how locked in Medvedev was physically, to see how well he hit the first serve, his best serving performance of the North American hardcourt stretch by far, and that's been the thing that's really hampered him, came in his round of 16 win over Demon. Rublev, three four-set wins and a straight-set win in round one, gets him here to this quarterfinal matchup. I mean, Medvedev, a 2-2 two and two victory when they played earlier this season in Dubai, but I mean... Boy, was Medvedev locked in on the hard courts during that stretch. That was during his winning streak, of course. And when he, Alcarez, and and Djokovic so clearly separated themselves through the first, and Sinner, through the first four months as the four best players in the world. (sighs) Again, Rublev can play with pace through that Medvedev forehand, but there's no secrets in this matchup. And again, tactically, you know Medvedev is going to park the freaking bus in the Andre Rublev backhand corner. Now, Rublev has gotten so much more physical, so much more proficient in playing through his own backhand wing. He's gotten so much better as a volleyer, will take advantage of those hanging slices or, you know, again, look to move forward, maybe not allow Medvedev to extend points as frequently as he has. (sighs) Medvedev in straights. I think Medvedev gets through. I think we're destined for Alcaraz, Medvedev, Tiafo, Djokovic, which, by the way, was my prediction to start the event as well. So I'm doubling down on it here. I'm going to stick with each of those matchups again. Rublev, uh, uh, Medvedev 6-2 in the career head-to-head. Djokovic 7-0 in the career head-to-head against Fritz. Tiafo Shelton, I believe this is their first career matchup. And then Zverev 3-2 in the career head-to-head with Alcaraz. But more than anything else, buckle your seats belts. It's going to be a very fun quarterfinal round of action. And again, we will get back on schedule on Wednesday. We will have a recap of all of Tuesday's action. We will also have a Great Shot podcast preview of all of Thursday's action. Again, if you're looking for coverage of the women's singles draw, just scroll down on your mini break podcast feed. We got you covered there. If you're looking for what's happening at the challenger level, if you're looking for what's happening from players with college tennis ties, head on over to the Great Shot podcast feed. We got you covered there as well. 
Cracked interview is going to be picking up this month. I promise that podcast has been lagging behind. That's on me, but I'm going to get my act together as soon as Bat Mitzvah season has completed. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, putting all of our content together. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for the fantastic super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.